Welcome to the Souls Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soulischurch.com. Psalm 42, verse 1. As you go there, Angela is going to go ahead and read our scripture for us. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go within the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mazar. Deep calls unto unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemy reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning... Uh, as we go back through Psalm 42, uh, the title of the message is, in, and usually the, my sermon titles, they are going to sort of be summaries of the whole theme of what we're studying. And I thought long and hard about this one. Sometimes I say that sarcastically, but here's what I landed on, okay? This morning, I want to preach from the title, Cottonmouth Christianity. Cottonmouth Christianity. And I just want to say, in this service, we're going to be talking a lot about being thirsty, and so just as a kind gesture, we put some water on your seat, a nice water bottle for you when you come in. You know, uh, as I was, like, preparing this, the more I would study this, I would, like, time to time, I would start to get cotton mouth. Like, I'm thirsty. The more I think about being thirsty, the more thirsty I get. And so didn't want you to be too distracted by that for you. So there you go. There's nothing more to it. It's not like a sermon illustration or anything. It's just if you get thirsty talking about thirst, you got some water. All right? In light of that... As we explore cottonmouth Christianity, this idea that comes out of this passage we just read, here in Psalm 42, we have that sort of a picture described, that sort of a spiritual condition is described here in Psalm 42 as the psalmist is describing how thirsty he is for God. Um, I want to ask you a question this morning. When was the last time that you experienced, think back to the last time that you experienced real and significant thirst, real and significant thirst, maybe something more recently, maybe there was a time where you were like miles from water, and you thought you were going to die of thirst, but when was the last time you had that cotton mouth, you know, that feeling of like, what I would, you know, what I would give for a glass of water right now, um, I'm trying to grow in the discipline of water drinking, it's a great healthy habit to develop, I've recently, uh, my, my water bottle size has been developing as I've been growing, I'm proud of that. I almost brought it as an illustration today, but I left it at home. Um, and uh, it's, it's a water bottle I just stole from my dad that's been, been sitting in his kitchen. I said, can I borrow this? And it's like one of those giant Yeti, like, one-gallon water things. Um, you know, there could be Kool-Aid in there. Nobody would know. But, you know, it's definitely, for me, it's a tool to, to try to get better at, at hydrating myself. My wife is always on me for that. I could go weeks just on coffee. That's the problem, okay? Um, I remember recently... We had our beach connect. Last time I remember being like really significantly thirsty. Uh, this is just like, if you're going to ask me this question, here's the honest answer. We had our, our beach connect at Red Reef two months ago. Two months ago, and we, I showed up there at around three something, and everybody else had water but me. And like, you know, I'm the pastor. I can't be all unprepared asking you for your water, you know? Like, I should have, you know, but like, can I have a drink, sir, please? You know, like, I, I didn't make that move, but I just remember Brian Morales, who's sitting over there, he had this beautiful, cold, yellow canned LaCroix, 
And I was, he didn't, I was talking to him the whole time, but I'm not sure, I was, he, the way he cracked it open and drank it, like just watching the beads of water go down it, I still, to this day, I'm haunted by that moment. Um, it's okay, bro, you know, I was going to ask you for a sip, but I thought that'd be weird. Hey, can I hit that, bro? Um, all right, when was the last time that you were real and significantly, really and significantly thirsty? You know, here in Psalm 42, we have real and significant thirst displayed. We have it described, but it's not the thirst that's physical that I'm breaking down here. It's a thirst of soul that the psalmist describes, a thirsty soul. Real and significant thirst. Here's the picture he gives us. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, the psalmist says, So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now, I grew up singing a version of this song in youth group that's basically, there's no like real melody, rhyme, or reason to it at all. It's just these verses being sung. And growing up, my understanding of, of this verse and this, this cry of the psalmist's heart is that he just wants more of God, like he's thirsting for God. One of my favorite books is called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, and this is actually one of the main themes and, and underlying ideas of the book, of being someone that's hungry for the things of God, that's thirsty for God, not satisfied and kind of content and comfortable, but like, Lord, I want you and I want more of you. But that's not what this psalm is describing at all. Uh, This expression here of thirst is not a matter of joyful longing. It's instead a matter of struggle and deep, intense panting. That's the idea. The, The picture he gives is that of a deer, a deer panting for water brooks. Um, you know, deer aren't, I'm not a deer hunter, some of you are, from what I understand, they're not too stupid, uh, at least to the extent that they don't wait till they're dying of thirst to get a drink. That's not the context here. The idea here is that they're panting for the water brooks. That's the picture there. The riverbed is run dry. This deer is in a desert wasteland, and he's beyond parched. He's thirsty to the point of almost death. And the psalmist says, just like that deer... In a desert wasteland with no water to drink, he says, So is my soul for you, O God. I wonder if you've ever felt this way before. Have you ever felt spiritually dry? Have you ever felt like your spiritual life was a desert wasteland? Have you ever felt like your form of Christianity was cotton-mouth Christianity is kind of the the picture that we use there. In Psalm 63, you get another complimentary verse. Psalm 63, verse 1, the psalmist writes, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you, in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. This is the condition of the psalmist. This is the state of his soul. As we go back to that, he's saying, in my relationship with God, there's a lack of vibrancy. There's instilled this great, instead this great dullness. There's dryness. You could say there's even a sense of, of deadness. As the deer pants for the water brook, so, so my soul pants for you, oh God. Now, what's difficult about this is how contradictory it is for us, especially as Christians, to the kind of life that Jesus promises. Uh, Look at John chapter 7. In John 7, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, here's what Jesus has on offer. He says, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, what a contrast. A one in one section, you have a soul that, that state is that of dryness and desolation um, and living in a desert. And on the other hand, you have Jesus inviting anyone who's in that state to come to him and experience these flowing rivers of living water. This is the illustration that Jesus uses to describe a spirit-filled life, a life that is just overflowing uh, with the refreshment of the things of God. Not bone dry, but filled to the brim and then over. That's a great picture there. Uh, There's another kind of idea of this in the book of Acts. When Peter is calling people to put faith in Jesus, here's here's his gospel invitation. 
He says to all those that were listening, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out through the cross of Jesus, and so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So this morning, we want to ask yourself this question. Uh, This morning, as you evaluate your own spiritual life, what is the state of your soul this morning? What is the state of your soul? Would you be someone that says, I'm in a position where the rivers of living water are flowing in and through my life? I sense God at work in me. I sense God at work with me and through me. Or could you find yourself in this season that, if we were all honest, we all find ourselves in from time to time, and it's said it's this opposite. It's not refreshment, but it's dryness. And maybe as you look on at other people around you, the more refreshed you see them, the more you look within and you go, what's wrong with me? Where did my spiritual life go? Well, in Psalm 42, you don't just have this verse that we read there where you have the condition described. As the psalmist begins to unpack this condition, as he begins to kind of unfold what's going on in his life, what you have here in this chapter, and you could write this down here in Psalm 42, what I want us to look at are these five common contributors to the spiritual dryness that the psalmist describes. Um, I, I pray that this could help you out a bit today if you find yourself in a dry season. These are some common contributors. Notice that I didn't call them five absolute causes. All right, we can be really moralistic with this sometimes and kind of get the formula, right? Uh, oh, you're spiritually dry? Well, here's the five reasons, okay? Did you do your checklist, right? If you did your tre- checklist, you shouldn't be thirsty for God. You should be overflowing with his spirit. What's wrong with you? No, we don't want to do that. We don't want to create this sort of formulaic approach to the things of God. And in fact, sometimes, sometimes it's a mystery. I don't know if you've ever been there. And this can, um, this can really, by the way, freak a new Christian out, especially. I remember when I first became a Christian, I put my faith in Jesus, and like the eye, my eyes were open. I'd given my whole life to Jesus, and it was like sp- the spiritual vibrancy switch that was off for so long, had cobwebs on it and everything. Like it had turned on. And I was like a light for Jesus. I was passionate for Jesus. And then like a couple weeks later, all of a sudden, I remember I woke up one morning, or maybe I'd, I'd fallen into some sin, or I had struggled. And next thing you know, I go, where's the Lord? Where did he go? Lord, did you leave? Like there's that feeling. And you start to question, was it real? Was my experience substantial? Did God really meet me? Did God really change me? This will freak people out these dry seasons. And so I don't want to present to you these sort of like absolute causes. It's not that these are, you know, the, the, the five ways to immediately get out of dryness, but it could be that like the psalmist here, these could be some of the key things that are contributing to the dryness in your spiritual life. So I pray that if that's so, the Holy Spirit would just illuminate uh, these things to you. And so in this passage, here's what we have. These five common contributors to spiritual dryness. Uh, Now, the first possibility as to why you may be experiencing dryness this morning uh, could be that you may have become spiritually stagnant. That's the first one. The first possibility is that you may be spiritually, of why you may be spiritually dry is because it's possible that you have become spiritually stagnant. We see this displayed as the psalmist goes on. We read there in verse 2, this sort of display of spiritual stagnancy. He's saying, I'm thirsty for God. He says that uh, I'm like a deer panting for God in a desolate wasteland. I have no vibrancy in my spiritual life. And then he says in verse 2, part B there, the second half, he says, when shall I come and appear before God? That's the question he asks. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, it's interesting. He's speaking to God. But the language he's using here is that he's been distant from God. You see that? He's like, I'm talking to God, but he's like, when should I really come before him? He's like, hold on, God, I got to talk to myself for a second, you know. And he's evaluating this fact that for a large part in his life, he's become spiritually stagnant. Or another way to say this is that he has neglected and forsaken his relationship with God. When shall I come come appear before God? When should I come back to him? You get more of this insight in verse 4. In verse 4, the psalmist describes a time when he used to go to the house of God. He says, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God. He's like, I used to go to church. That's basically what he's saying, right? I used to go to church all the time. 
I was serving in church. I was a part of my church. I was in a community group. Uh, but notice it's a past tense thing. I used to. I went with them to the house of God. I, I, was, I was giving my voice in joy, with joy and praise. I was worshiping the Lord in the church. I was serving God. I was connected to the Lord with a multitude that kept the pilgrim feast. So notice again, there was a time in his life when he was spiritually active, but that time is no more because he has become spiritually stagnant. Stagnant. You ever felt spiritually stagnant? You ever been spiritually stuck? There was a time where you were more vibrant, but you have become stagnant. Now, that word stagnant, um, I don't like it. It's one of those that just doesn't feel right in the tongue. I prefer not to say it as as much, but we'll see how many times I have to before we're done. Um, That's free. That has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. Um, The word stagnant, it means this, showing no activity, becoming dull or sluggish. That's the idea. It's inactive, showing no activity, becoming dull or sluggish. And it usually doesn't happen overnight. It's, not, it's usually not like you are going full speed ahead, pursuing the Lord, spiritually active, and then suddenly you go, you know what, I'm going to U-turn. This whole like passionate for Jesus, his love overwhelming my life thing, you know, serving him, living for him, you know, fullness of life, all this stuff. It's just not that awesome. I'm going to go this way instead. Usually it's not like that. Usually it's just subtle compromises here or there. I take a day off from spending time with the Lord. That day off becomes two days, becomes three days, becomes a week. Start to disconnect. I stop reaching out for accountability. Next you know, I, I kind of stop going to church. You know, what do they know? They're a bunch of hypocrites anyway, you know. And then just slowly but surely, what was once a compromise has become full-blown stagnation. And you become inactive, dull, and sluggish in your walk with the Lord. You know, Scripture calls us out of this sort of posture. In Hebrews chapter 6, here's what what the writer of Hebrews says. It says, we desire for all Christians that that you each show, notice this, the same diligence to the full assurance of hope all the way to the end. Don't lose that passion. Don't get sluggish. He says that you do not become sluggish. Don't get stagnant, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Isn't this such an incredible vision for the Christian life? What what the author here is saying is, is is that the Christian life is four quarters. It's not just the first quarter game. It's not a first half game. In fact, the tendency in the second half is to slack because of all the time you've put in on the front end. And he says, be careful that you don't fall into this trap where you think that you can somehow coast off of your past spiritual progress. Don't become sluggish. Maintain that same fervor, that same diligence to the full assurance of hope all the way to the end. All the way to the end. You know, I got to say, and I shout them out all the time, so, you know, it's probably not fair. I'll try to spread out the shout outs a little bit more, okay? You get one next week, whoever you are. Um, what does that even mean? I don't know. But my dad is a great example of this. My dad is, he's in the fourth quarter. I think it's okay to say that, right, Dad? Are you, you're not in the first half. You're not in the first half. Let's be, he's grandpa, okay? And one of, one of the best testimonies for me as a young Christian in the first half is having an example like my dad, who I've watched go from the first, second, third to fourth quarter, and listen, not coast, but just develop in his love for Jesus over time. There's something, listen, those of you in the second half, can I tell you something? We need you. We need you. We need your diligence. We need your faith. For every example there is of diligence, can I tell you, there's like 20 Christians that gave up. And so there's just something profound to a life that endures, that continues to grow in the Lord, that, that says, yeah, I'm here in the fourth quarter, but I'm not slacking. I'm serving Jesus. I'm loving Jesus. And listen, for those of you who are young, you're like, okay, this doesn't apply to me. I'm in the first quarter. It's like, well, how's your first quarter going? How's your spiritual life today? How's your activity? How's your passion? Have you become sluggish? You know, when we become stagnant, what we begin to do almost unknowingly is we begin to open up little doors and footholds in our life for the enemy to lead us off track, those little compromises. 
usually, usually the patterns that I see is, is stagnation that leads to sin and sin that leads to further stagnation and, and just kind of this downward spiral on and on and on and on. Um, the, here's what, what kind of the, uh, this is kind of like a negative command, don't be sluggish. But I love Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Uh, the word there, keep, it's an ongoing practice is the idea. Another word for it is guard. You've got to keep your heart. Like a, and the, the picture there is like a garden. You know, if you're trying to plant a beautiful, vibrant garden, you're, you know, it'd be foolish to say, what, what, I don't need to take care of it. I kept it last year. I kept it. It's it done been kept, all right? I should be good. And, and, and the, the author of Proverbs here, the wisdom given here is, be careful that you don't let your spiritual life go. Like a guitar, it's going to come out of tune naturally. You've got to be diligent. And, and sometimes, you ever notice this, by the way? Like stuff comes out. You're like, oh, okay. God, by his spirit, he'll convict you when you're starting to go off. He'll be like, oh, hello. You've got to keep that. right? Keep your heart. You're like, it's them. And you start to turn around and start to point everybody around you. And God's like, how's your heart doing? Right? How's your relationship with me doing? Don't grow stagnant. Now, this is interesting. When I looked up the word stagnant, um, I read really comprehensive dictionaries. I also Google words. And when I Googled it, that was a joke. I, I only Google words. But that's not how I prepare the sermon, by the way. I don't just Google. What should I say? I don't do that. But for a definition, I do. All right. Another definition for the word stagnant, this is actually the first one, is water having no current. It's obviously used often of water. Water that has no current or flow, and often it has an unpleasant smell as a consequence. You know that sitting water in your backyard that you need to go home today and dump out? You know what I'm talking about? That water, okay? Mosquitoes, they love it. Got to dump that water out, okay? I have a garbage pail in the back that has that right now, okay? So... What this is saying, this definition, is it's that sitting water. And over time, it grows, as it gets stagnant, it gets stale, and it starts to emit an unpleasant smell. And it's almost like the same for our spiritual lives. You know, Jesus, Jesus says this about us. He says that, or Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, that we are to be the fragrance of Christ. That there's to be a, this, this almost pleasant scent of our spiritual lives. And then there's times where you start to go, what's that smell? Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm becoming stagnant. I'm becoming stale. I've become inactive. I've got to be passionate. I need to be passionate. Jesus said this in John 15, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And so essentially Jesus here is giving a metaphor to describe that he is the source of life. He is the source of spiritual life. And so if there's spiritual dryness in my life, we have to ask our question, have I become disconnected from the source? Have I become stagnant? Have I become stuck and wandered from the Lord? And if so, I need to come back home. I need to repent. As we read there in Acts 3, repent of your sin. Repent of your stagnation. And be converted so that times of refreshing may come from God's spirit. So that could be possibly one contributor to your spiritual dryness is being spiritually stagnant. Here's another one. Another reason why you may, may feel spiritually dry today is, is it's possibly that you've become emotionally driven. Emotionally driven. That's another picture that we get here from the psalmist. This guy doesn't just have emotions, but his emotions have him. It tells us this in verse 3. He says, My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God. Now, this is really interesting. What, what poetic language? Here's what he says. My tears are talking to me. That's what he says. My emotions, a.k.a. the poetic language for saying, my emotions are preaching me a sermon. They're communicating to me. Now, the, the worst part about this is that he's listening. It's almost like he's attentively listening to what his emotions are telling him. My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? Where is your God? Uh, and so, again, we have this kind of negative example of someone who's being emotionally driven. Now, I like to think of emotions um, on this um, kind of spectrum of health that we should live within. Uh, emotions, are, by the way, emotions are a good thing. God made you with a soul. He made you uh, as an emotional being. 
you know, and all the guys in the room are like, not me, all right? I've got an ounce of emotion in my body. Fine, if anger's not an emotion, you're not an emotional person, okay? Sure thing. Or lust, not emotional at all. It's like, of course you are. We all have, have some emotional makeup, and, and there's a balance here. Um, and I kind of use this framework of how our emotions are, are there. God's given us them to indicate, not to dictate. To indicate, not to dictate. And so the psalmist, in his feeling, his, uh, his, his feelings and his circumstances, it feels like the Lord is distant. And his, his emotions are speaking that, and he's kind of listening to that. Now, it's, it's healthy to listen to what your emotions are saying, first and foremost. Because they're like God-given indicator lights. It's called being emotionally healthy. There's times where, like, I, I think I talked about this last week, there's times where where in my emotions, like sometimes I need my wife to help me identify what I'm actually feeling. I'll be like, man, I'm just so angry at this scenario. She's like, no, you're not angry. You're actually sad about it. It's like, who are you, Yoda? Like, how did you know that? Like, <laughs> what do I owe you? You know? And it's true. There's something to um, allowing God to meet you right where you're at and with right, right uh, where you're feeling what you're feeling. The opposite of this is you just become an emotional pressure cooker. If you're not paying attention to what's there, either it's just going to explode or you're going to be unhealthy. So there, there's something to allowing your emotions to indicate things. This is what's going on. This is what you're feeling. It's okay to feel. Be angry. Don't sin, but be angry if that's the emotion. Jesus weeps over Lazarus' death. Okay, I don't know where this like, view of spiritual maturity came from, that like, the more spiritual you become, the less emotional you are. Like, the, no, like, no, the more healthy you are with those emotions. Now, the opposite of an emotional pressure cooker is an emotional waterfall. It's a faucet that has no shutoff valve. So, so if one person is not allowing their emotions to indicate anything, the other person is moving beyond their emotions, indicating to their emotions or dictating everything. Okay, and, and you know, the language that we use a lot for all sorts of different things in our lives, but we could use it of emotions, is that emotions make a great servant to your faith, they, but they make a horrible master. They make a horrible lord and, and, and dictator, and, that, and that's what we see going on in this, with the psalmist. His, his tears are speaking to him, and it's actually driving him. Now, your emotions should indicate, but they shouldn't dictate your decisions. They shouldn't cause you to act and draw your full conclusions and let me say this, especially about the presence of God. Especially about, maybe right now you're like, man, I'm spiritually dry. Maybe, maybe you're not actually spiritually dry. Maybe you just feel that way. And it's okay to go, why do I feel that way? But maybe there's, ready for this? Maybe there's more to the story than how you feel. Maybe there's more truth than what your emotions are leading you to be. But this psalmist, he says, where is your God? That's what his emotions were speaking. Now, um, you know, if God is only ever as close as you feeling him, then that means his presence in your life needs to be as consistent as your emotions. If God is only as present as wh of whether or not you can feel him, okay, God's here. How do you know? I know, Okay. Well, if it's all about emotion-driven, then he's only ever going to be as present as your emotions are consistent. And here's the problem with that. They're not, are they? They're not. Like, God is here in this place because we're in church and nobody's getting cut off right now, isn't he, right? The Lord is here, right? But not when I got cut off on the way here, pulling out of my driveway to preach a sermon, okay? That's real, all right? A whole different feeling going on. Now, there, there's something that's even more weighty to this. When you go on in this psalm, I want you to notice something. Right, so you see the question that, that David's, uh, or rather the psalmist's emotions are leading him to ask, where is God? So that's the question his emotions are leading him to ask. They're preaching to him this question. They're not asking it. They're kind of declaring it. Where is God? Like, where is he at? That's what the emotions are saying. The Lord's left you. Now, I want you to notice this. In verse 42, or Psalm 42, verse 9, David's, or I keep saying David. The psalmist says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So later on, the psalmist begins to describe some of his enemies that are surrounding him and making him feel the way that he feels. And I want you to notice this. And with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long. I want you to see this. His enemies are the ones that gave him that question. Where is your God? So isn't this interesting? What was once the word of an enemy 
has now become the word of David's or the psalmist's own emotions. And this is what can subtly happen. I, I see this in my life all the time, having to have guards up. Um, there's, there's this almost like tactical way that the enemy can leverage what you're feeling to use that to make you think that that's true. And that's where this thought comes from. It comes from the enemy, playing on our emotions, getting us to think, feel, and do things that we shouldn't. Rather than our emotions becoming indicators, they could become dictators. Now, what's the healthy way to navigate that? Well, we should, again, we should be conscious of what we're feeling if we're spiritually dry. But your emotions are for, are for recognizing. Um, they're healthy to be there, but they're, they're not for serving. So I love in verse 5, uh, the psalmist shifts. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And notice the change here. Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. He's talking to himself now. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. This is really cool. Uh, the author goes from listening to his soul. Right? Don't shut it up. Don't tell your soul not to talk. You can listen. But he, but he responds to his soul. He talks back. When, it, when his emotions are saying one thing, he's proclaiming back to his emotions the truth of God. He, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? So he's talking to his soul now. And he's telling his soul to hope in God. He's given his soul some healthy theology. Now, like in the church today, there's this big reaction happening where like for, forever in the church, it was just all head, no heart. It was all about what we know. It was all about the theological. It was all about the informational. And there's been for, I think, a long time such an absence of, of really, you know, feeling God, sensing God's presence. The danger in what we're seeing in a lot of ways today is the exact opposite, though where it's all about feeling. It's all about the Lord. And if you haven't felt the Lord, you might not be a real Christian. Because that, you know, that's what his, his, if you haven't got Jesus goosebumps in a month, I would question your salvation. Like, that's what can happen. And, and we start to make this all feeling-driven. And David's like, no, my feelings need theology. My emotions need the truth of God. And so this could be another reason why maybe today you're spiritually dry. Uh, you're too emotionally driven. So a lot, rather than letting your emotions drive, let them indicate. Uh, here's a third one. I've never preached on this before, but maybe you're physically unhealthy. Maybe you're physically unhealthy. Third possibility could not have to do with not your emotional health or your spiritual health. Maybe it's your physical health. It's like, Andrew, where I didn't read the verse that says, I've been eating McDonald's too much. God, you're so far from me. Where is that? I didn't read that. Okay. <laughs> Or Chipotle, high calorie. Um, notice verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. So think about this. First of all, he's not eating. He's like, I'm eating my tears. I'm so sad that I'm not eating at all. And there are some signs here that, that actually are connected to clinical depression. There's stuff that, that is tied to this with, with a loss of appetite. But we see in his life, he's like, I'm not eating. And he says, my tears have been my food. When? Day and night. So he's up all night. He's not eating and he's not sleeping. There's physical issues in his life that are playing a major part even in his spiritual life. Which is really hard for us as Americans, right? Um, I think in our, especially our spiritual culture, we tend to be, I talked about earlier, we tend to be like moralistic. Which is like, if I do these things, this stuff will happen. Like Jesus' magic words or Jesus' magic behavior, if I act this way, this is the result every time. And there's a whole book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes that just like takes that and crumbles it up and throws it in the garbage. It's like, no, that doesn't happen. But in, additional, in addition to being moralistic, in, especially in our church culture in the West, we, we also tend to be, and it's the word dualistic, especially in our spiritual lives. The idea of dualism is that we, we tend to separate the different parts of who we are, Right? So we have this, our spiritual lives. They're over here, the spiritual stuff. Going to church, reading the Bible, praying. And then we have the physical stuff. It's like what I do with my body, and it's kind of separate. It's how I eat. It's how I sleep. It's my rhythms. It's my physical rhythms. We tend to think of spiritual disciplines as largely that, spiritual. We don't think of physical acts and physical rhythms as spiritual at all. We tend to separate that. In fact, this isn't something new. This was uh, one of the biggest issues in the early church, 
When Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, one of the biggest things that he was calling out in their culture was this heresy called Gnosticism that had crept into the church. That It communicated this idea that Jesus... Uh, that only the spiritual is holy, that the physical is, is just marred by sin and broken and can never be redeemed. And, and so they actually, they blasphemed Jesus and they, they said things like, Jesus actually never took on a body. Okay, the word actually didn't really become flesh, you know, because physical and spiritual have to be separate. In fact, he just appeared as a man. That's what they said. That, that's what they taught. And this crept into the church so much so that there's all sorts of implications of this. But one of them, get this heresy, one of the implications of this theology in the church was that, you know what, if, if, as long as I tend to my spiritual life, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. So I can go worship the temple prostitute and do whatever I want there because it's just my broken body. It's, you know, we say this today. We're like, I'm just a sinner. I'm going to sin, right? That's what we say. Like, what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. And here's what what Paul says. You guys have read this. He says, don't you know that your bodies, he's talking about your physical body, is a member of Christ? He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? He says, certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one through intimacy. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, kind of the famous verse there in 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Therefore, he says rather, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. So, so Paul goes, um, don't create this distinction, this dualism, where you pit your body and your spirit against each other. He says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He joins together both body and spirit. He does this again in 1 Thessalonians as he's uh, giving a benediction to the church. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now, when I think about sanctification, I think about the process by which God is making me holy. And I, I think about it in terms of a very spirit, exclusively spiritual thing. But he says, may God sanctify you completely. Isn't this interesting? A complete sanctification. May your whole spirit, soul, and body. God is not just concerned with your spiritual life. He's also concerned with your soul. He's also concerned with your body. May it be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the reason why Paul is saying this. Paul didn't have this problem that we tend to have. Paul understood that that we're integrated beings. That how I act with my body, it has implications for what's going on in the spiritual. Now, this can go down all sorts of um, Peter Rabbit trails, and so we're, we're not going to do that. I will say this. One of the most common things that, that this has helped me with is w- what this can help us with, especially in spiritual dryness and trying to kind of diagnose and figure out why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling, is, and again, this is a, a possibility, maybe just be open to the fact that what you're feeling right now is connected to some of the physical habits and rhythms you have in your life. Maybe you're not eating well. Maybe you're not, you need to be more like Jesus. He takes naps on boats. Go find a boat, take a nap on it, all right? That's why I follow him, all right? He takes naps on boats. I'll follow you. Um, a lot of times we can just immediately assume that the devil is behind every problem. You know what I mean? Like, why am I feeling this way? Why am I so angry? It's like the devil. Spiritual warfare. It's like, you, you, need, a, you need a Snickers. It's like, <laughs> you're hungry. Husbands and wives, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Babe, we need to eat. Okay? You need, oh, you're a new mom. You're a new mom. You need sleep. So, so this is, is kind of the, the traps that we can fall into, is we separate. We, we're just like, we can be just like the Corinthians where we separate the physical and spiritual. So consider that. Consider how Jesus cares also about what you do with your body. Uh, here's another possibility. Uh, maybe the reason why you're spiritually dry is not that it, it, could be a, it could be a combination, by the way, of all these things. But spiritual dryness is often contributed to by spiritual stagnancy, being spiritually stagnant. Spiritual dryness can be a result of being emotionally driven. Spiritual dryness can be a result of being physically unhealthy. Spiritual dryness, I know this is pretty relevant for me, can be the result of of being mentally distracted. Like the thing that's consuming your life isn't the Lord. 
thing that's consuming your mind. Uh, Notice what the psalmist said there in verse 4. He said, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. Now, what are the the things that he's remembering? Well, it was verse 3 where his emotions are talking to him about the absence of God. And he goes, man, when I think about these things, I get even more sad. Isn't that interesting? He's like, so uh, my, my tears are already talking to me. And then when I listen to them, I remember what they're saying, and I get sad some more. And notice how he pours out his soul within him. That's the response. That's, that's the, the, the result of this. Uh, but notice how it's, it's a response to what he's thinking about. When I remember these things, this is huge. Uh, the idea here is that the psalmist is conscious and he's, his mind is full of all sorts of distracting things. Now, there's a really interesting contrast with what he's saying here, when I remember these things. All right, so see that verse, when I remember these things. Now, notice verse 6. Oh, my God, my soul is cast down within me. Now, notice this decision here. Therefore, I will remember you. Isn't that cool? I'm so conscious of all these things, God. I'm so conscious of all these things in my life. I'm so conscious with what's wrong in the world around me. I'm so conscious of all my problems. I'm so, I'm so mindful of all the brokenness. And when I remember all these things, my soul is poured out within me, and I'm spiritually dry. Maybe it's because you're distracted. He says, therefore, I will remember you, O Lord. I will remember you. There's a discipline of memory here, knowing our tendency to be distracted. This is a spiritual discipline in and of itself, to be mindful, to have a mind that is full of the Lord. So I'll ask you this question this morning. What are you most mindful of? If there's spiritual dryness in your life, I would just ask you, what consumes your thought life? Another way to ask this is, what is your mind most full of? What what sort of press, what sort of ideas, what sort of problems are consuming the radio station that is your mind? What are you tuning into? Um, This could be, just like the psalmist, another cause to the spiritual dryness is you are more conscious of the things around you, on the things going on within you even, than you are of the Lord himself. And And what's interesting about this whole idea of, like, remembering the Lord, it's not that I remember God and my problems go away, but there's just something to having God on your mind when you're walking through those hard times. And and it's okay, by the way, to recognize the problems, but then you respond and you go, okay, this is what's going on, but I will remember who the Lord is in this. I will remember. It's a discipline. We, We studied the book of Philippians just before this series, and just toward the end, we look at... Uh, we looked at Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, here's the call. Meditate on these things. The psalmist says, when I thought of these things, I got really sad. He goes, well, it's okay, but meditate on things that are also true. Think about things that are also noble and praiseworthy. Uh, even just this command, it's a great command. To meditate on these things, what, what, what Paul is saying is, is think about what you're thinking about. Think about it. What are you thinking about? And make sure you're not distracted, that you're not caught off guard, you're not consumed in a way that's bringing you away from remembering the Lord. Hey, the last one here. The, the fifth common contribution that we see here in this text, I've, I've seen these as well uh, in my life and, and, and people around me, is being relationally isolated. Why am I so spiritually dry? Maybe you've become spiritually stagnant and you need to reconnect to the source of spiritual life, which is Jesus. Why am I so spiritually dry like a deer panting for water? Well, it could be because your emotions are driving everything in your walk with the Lord and the enemy's using that. Why am I so spiritually dry? Well, because you're physically unhealthy. You need some healthy rhythms. Why am I spiritually dry? Maybe you've become mentally distracted. You need to get your mind back on the things of the Lord. And then lastly, why am I spiritually dry? It could be because you're relationally isolated. You're walking alone. Psalm 42, verse 4. We just looked at this verse, but I want you to see it with kind of a different lens. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to, his past spiritual life, he talks about how it's it's it it was a it was vibrant in time past, but notice one of the main characteristics of his spiritual life. I used to go with the multitude. You see it there? I used to go with them 
to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude. I'm gathering together with the people of God to keep a pilgrim feast. The pilgrim feasts were all the different uh, feasts to commemorate and remember how God had worked mightily among his people to bring them together and make them a people. Community is an invaluable part of your relationship with Jesus. Without it, you will starve. You can't do it. Don't even try. In fact, you know this. You know this especially if there's a lack of the spiritual vibrancy that you know God has called you to. There's just only so much you can experience in the Lord alone. I'm not saying there's not anything you can experience. There's a lot to experience in the Lord. But there's only so much that you can and there's only so far that you can go. And sometimes you have to come to that place where you can't go any further. That you go, I need help. I need people. I need the church. I need the people of God. I used to be in community with the people of God, but now I've become disconnected and I feel dry. There's great pictures of this even in the New Testament. Uh, I was kind of reading through all of them trying to figure out which to pick. Um, And it's one of the main reasons why we want to encourage you to not walk with Jesus alone, especially here at Solus. Uh, In a couple of weeks, it's even in the bulletin we have there, we're going to be rolling out our fall uh, community cycle. Really excited about that. Some uh, handful of new groups that are happening. We're seeing our church grow and multiply new leaders, new groups. Uh, It's going to be awesome. And uh, I'm going to give like a marching order hoorah call for us to be a, a church that's experiencing authentic community then. And I'll go through some of the different reasons why we really need each other. Uh, but just here in this point, uh, th- there's one a specific one uh, that connects to this that we, we see displayed by Paul in 2 Timothy about this guy who unfortunately is named Anisiphorus. He's related to the Tyrannosaurus, if you were wondering, okay? Anisiphorus Rex, what up? It's like, Andrew, don't make fun of Bible, guys. What is your, you're a jerk. So Paul says this about Onesiphorus Rex. He says, the Lord, sorry, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Oni. For he, notice this, he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Isn't that such a great picture of what community is meant to do? He's like, man, may God bless this guy because he's been a great refreshment to me. Are you stale? Well, who has God brought around you in time past that brought brought refreshment to your walk. God wants to refresh you through his people. Uh, this, this is a, one example of this, but these are all throughout the scriptures, these different uh, expressions that Paul makes about people and about communities that have refreshed one another. Uh, that's what the heart of church is meant to be, a community of people that are pouring each other out into one another, filling each other up to be refreshed in the Lord. And so the question I'd ask you about this today is, are you relationally isolated? Are you disconnected? By the way, you can be in a church community and be disconnected. You can be in a community and not be in community. You you can come to church and not be connected to the body. You can serve in church. Heck, I've seen pastors who are relationally isolated. These aren't absolute, absolute causes, but these are some possible contributions. Uh, Wherever you find yourself, as we close, I'll invite the band to come up. Uh, Wherever you find yourself in terms of your spiritual dryness or refreshment today, I'm not sure where you are. Only you know, only the Lord really knows where you're at. Whether you're that picture that Jesus gives in John 7 of this flowing river of living water, vibrancy in the Lord, or or maybe you find yourself more like the deer, that picture there in Psalm 42, cotton mouth, dry to the bone, parched, panting for water, regardless of where you found yourself. You know, we, we we always want to end a time like this, gathering, studying God's word, um, see, I shout him out, and then his phone rings. You know, it's like, it's, it's just, it just makes sense. I love you. Um, I had to. Um, here, here's what I want to say as we close. We always want to end a time like this looking at who Jesus is. And we want to because we get to. The Christian life is we get to know Jesus. We get to follow him. We get salvation. We get to be his kids. It's not something we've earned, but it's good news of what's been earned and given 
for us and to us. Wherever you find yourself today when it comes to spiritual thirst, I want you to think about Jesus hanging on a cross. And as Jesus is hanging on a cross for your sin and, and my sin, for let, let me say this, Jesus is hanging on the cross for the spiritual dryness of humanity. For a population of people that have been disconnected from God because of their sin. In John chapter 19, 28, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the scriptures tell us that Jesus said, I thirst. And though this was certainly physical, we know the story, we know what happens with the sponge and with the vinegar. There's not, listen, there's not lack of meaning in anything that Jesus is saying, especially from the cross. It's as if on the cross, Jesus is bearing not just the physical, but also the spiritual thirst of humanity. That spiritual emptiness that that woman at the well had. That spiritual emptiness that you and I tend to find ourselves in. That bone dry desert feeling. Jesus is on the cross and he says, I'm taking that. I'm bearing the cosmic thirst of the world here on the cross as I'm disconnected from the Father here in this moment, becoming sin on your and my behalf. Jesus became our dryness so that you can be refreshed through him. So that as you come to him, notice again the call, as you come to him and drink, if you thirst, here's the only pre-qualifier for being refreshed by Jesus. You ready? You have to be thirsty. You have to admit that you're bone dry without him. You have to admit that you in and of yourself, you're you're not enough. You need the spirit of God. You need the grace of God to pour all that that he is out upon you. And here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus does. He's willing. He's willing to refresh you. He's willing and he desires for your life to look like that of a flowing river of living water. And he made a way for that through going to the cross for you.